Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Pilar Thomas, a partner at Quarles and Brady and a professor of the practice at both the University of Arizona and Arizona State University. Pilar is an expert on energy development and environmental management on tribal lands and has served in the U.S. Departments of Justice, Interior, and Energy. I'll ask Pilar about a variety of issues, including how different tribes are approaching fossil and renewable energy development, how they are preparing for the energy transition, and how they are addressing energy poverty on tribal lands. Stay with us. Okay, Pilar Thomas, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. It's great to be here. So, Pilar, we're going to talk about your work on Indian energy law and tribal environmental and natural resource management, uh, and I'm really fascinated for the conversation. But before we get into details, can you tell us how you ended up working on energy and environmental issues? (laughs) So it's like a lot of things that happen to me in life. I just kind of say, hey, that looks really interesting. Let me go try and do that for a little while. Um, I'm a lawyer, but the law is my second career. I had a first career in financial services and so decided to go quit, go back to law school and um, work for my tribe, a member of the Pasquayaki tribe based out of Tucson, Arizona, although we have communities all, all in Arizona and, and in California. Um, and my key interest was really to work with my tribe and other tribes around economic development opportunities and um, In 2005, we had the Energy Policy Act of 2005 got enacted, and all of a sudden, the federal government was doing things out of the Department of Energy and the Department of Interior around tribal energy and around tribal clean energy. Uh, At the same time, here in Arizona, the governor, uh, uh, Napolitano at the time, was also very engaged with tribes around um, energy development opportunities. And, you know, most tribes in Arizona, their big economic endeavor is gaming. And uh, while I practice gaming and worked with my tribe on gaming issues and other other tribes, uh, when I looked around and saw this new renewable energy that had the federal government working with tribes more uh, and nobody else working on that, uh, all I could think of was, well, there's a lot of sun in Arizona and solar (laughs) looks pretty cool. Uh, why don't we all have solar panels? And so I've uh, made it my life's mission to have a solar panel on every rooftop uh, in Indian country, because to me, solar panels should be like refrigerators. So that's how I got into it. That's so interesting. Well, they should be like refrigerators, I imagine, because everyone should have one. Not everyone should, should have be cold, one. Yeah, right? it's a, your solar, your solar panels should be just another appliance that you have to have. That's really interesting. Um so, so let's talk about that work now, and you know we're going to touch on uh, clean energy uh, in a couple of minutes. But first, I want to ask you uh, to start talking about fossil energy development. Um, so, as some of our listeners probably know, there are uh, 574 federally recognized American Indian and Native Alaskan tribes, and um, sometimes, again, from my reading of uh, the news and, and opinion pieces, occasionally people will make the implicit argument that all tribes are opposed to fossil energy development, whether it's coal, oil, and gas. 
Um, but of course, it's you know more complicated than that. So can you help us understand the variation in attitudes that different tribes might take towards fossil energy production on their lands? Yes, so I think most tribes that have oil and gas uh, resources actually have developed those resources. And a part of that is a kind of a legacy uh, of uh, oil and gas development on Indian lands that was really promoted by the federal government back at the turn of, not this century, the last century. So the late 1800s, early 1900s, when oil and gas was discovered on Osage lands, for example, in Oklahoma, you know, southern uh, Colorado, uh, the southern Utes and the Ute Mountain Utes. So, uh, and, and much of that promoted, that development promoted by the federal government itself. Uh, and certainly as a way to raise revenue for tribes, for them to use their resources. And so that legacy um, uh, investment and participation in the oil and gas industry has, has just remained. As long as there's paying quantities of oil, uh, oil and gas leases will be in effect on Indian lands. Um, so, so there aren't, frankly, there aren't that I'm aware of with a handful, maybe one or two tribes that have oil and gas resources and refuse to develop them. Everybody else, every other tribe, and there aren't that many, it's maybe a dozen at the most tribes that have, uh, recoverable and, um, um, uh, exploitable, uh, oil and gas, uh, deposits. Now, of course, you know, the uh, fracking, hydraulic fracturing technology, horizontal drilling technology has uh, increased the recoverability of, of deposits or made certain deposits actually recoverable now where they weren't before. Uh, so that has extended the life of uh, those, those opportunities for tribes. But I think for the most part, tribes that have oil and gas development support it. They make a lot of money off of it. It helps them government revenues for their tribal government to provide, you know, programs and services and develop their communities and develop their economies. Uh, so, so those tribes are very keenly aware of how important those resources are to them and continue to take advantage of them. Um, other tribes, for example, like Southern U, have uh, expanded beyond the reservation borders to get into oil and gas development off reservation land. So they've, they've leveraged their expertise uh, in oil and gas development and operations and now um, invest in offshore oil and gas development in the Gulf of Mexico. They're in um, pipeline distribution and um, uh, pipeline ownership. So they're taking advantage of the midstream part of that. Uh, and so, so you, you do have a handful of tribes like Southern Ute who will uh, go out and parry their expertise um, out off the reservation uh, and, and doing that, that business and engage in that business uh, in, in uh, the non-Indian world, as we would say. Right. That's so interesting. And maybe to go to the other end of the spectrum uh, for a moment and touch on the Dakota Access Pipeline protests, which were such a huge news story a couple of years ago and, you know, centered around environmental concerns related to the construction of the pipeline uh, on Standing Rock Reservation or, or near Standing Rock Reservation. Um, can you give us a sense of how important those protests were in terms of galvanizing different tribes from across the country uh, to to protest that pipeline, and then in addition, what if any lasting effects you think it it 
will have or is having today? Well, I gave a presentation on Dapple a couple of years ago, and I uh, titled it um, Dapple Changed Everything and Nothing at All. You know, on the one hand, there was not a uniform view of Indian country on Dapple. Uh, for example, Fort Berthold uh, Indian Reservation, the MHA, uh, Mandan, Hidatsu, and Arikara tribes of Fort Berthold, who have the largest oil and gas play for tribes in the country on the Bakken Shale, uh, that pipeline was going to be used to move their oil products to market. Uh, and so, uh, you know, not not a uniform view uh, by tribes of the importance. Now, an appreciation certainly of the environmental issues, the the, the very proximate environmental issues that the the pipeline could pose to the Standing Rock Sioux tribe, given its proximity to the tribe's reservation and given its, of course, um, uh, path under the tribe's drinking water source. Uh, and that's a, that's a concern that tribes across the country share with energy infrastructure, especially pipeline infrastructure, uh, right? So at the same time, you had lots of stories about pipelines uh, blowing up, spilling, uh, huge issues associated with the people who are running DAPL and other pipeline problems. So that was something that certainly uh, nobody wants to see happen. So an easy thing for tribes to be concerned about as well as others. Uh, uh, and, and certainly it heightened awareness of some of the major environmental issues and concerns that tribes have, but it really heightened an awareness of kind of how tribes can influence off-reservation projects that might have on-reservation impacts. So uh, while nothing changed for the Trump administration, uh, I think, for example, in the Biden administration, we're going to see a return to uh, a more considerate uh, incorporation of tribes in off-reservation development. And there's a need to move fast. Biden administration, for example, is promoting lots of transmission lines that you need for lots of wind projects and solar projects. Um, it's unclear kind of where they're going to be on pipelines. He's still got to move oil and gas around. Yeah, you know, he obviously is not anti-oil and gas, although there's been a pause of new federal oil and gas. So this infrastructure is still necessary. Um, it's still probably better than putting it in trucks and driving it around uh, or rail cars, which we've seen can be just as dangerous. Um, so it's, you know, pick your lesser evil. And that's why it really hasn't changed anything at all either. It's not stopping pipelines. Uh, it's heightened the awareness of having tribes at the table when uh, pipelines or other infrastructure is going to affect the tribe, uh, both on and off reservation. I think this administration will have a heightened awareness. Um, you know, DAPL was an Army Corps decision. Uh, with some influence from Interior, certainly on federal lands, uh, pipelines and infrastructure on federal lands. Now with Secretary Holland uh, coming on board, uh, I think you're, there's no doubt you're going to see um, more tribal participation or at least an effort to get tribal participation in and tribal equities considered. Um, so that's changed. Uh, you know, there was for a moment the belief that maybe you could get the big banks to stop investing 
uh, in these types of pipelines and especially pipelines where there's a strong objection from uh, tribes or other indigenous communities? Um, we'll see how that bears out. I know, you know, certainly a lot of banks are just kind of moving to divest anyway. I don't think DAPL is necessarily the reason for that, but I think DAPL certainly, the anti-DAPL um, effort to divest from the pipeline investment itself might have had some slight influence. But I don't, I, again, I don't see, you know, Citibank isn't getting out of, uh, isn't divesting of fossil fuels because of DAPL. It's divesting because of climate change. Um, but DAPL certainly, uh, kind of known one of those data points in that whole bigger discussion. Yeah, definitely a focusing event for for a lot of folks. Um, so as you just alluded to, uh, the Biden administration earlier this year issued an executive order that halted new oil and gas leasing activities on federal lands. It didn't ban new drilling on existing leases, but it stopped uh, the new leasing of federal lands. And after a little bit of initial confusion, they clarified that the order did not apply to tribal lands. So as the U.S. and the world you know, move forward towards uh, ultimately a net zero emissions future, to what extent do you think coal, oil, and gas producing tribes are preparing today for that future in which their resources become less viable? Um, it's hard to tell, for example. I do think that Navajo, for example, which is a heavy reliance on coal, NGS has shut down, Navajo Generating Station has shut down, uh, APS has announced that they're going to uh, get out of the Four Corners power plant, uh, which uh, uh, uses coal from, from Navajo lands. Uh, in fact, Navajo stood up a coal mining company it is entitled the Navajo Transitional Energy Transitional Energy Company. So uh, that that company is charged by uh, to look at how do we get off of coal. And so uh, it wouldn't surprise me that given now certainly NGS shut down, APS about to shut down Four Corners, uh, that there isn't a heightened need for that that company and other parts of Navajo. The utility authority has has stood up a 50 megawatt solar project. Uh, lots of people running around Navajo trying to figure out how to do solar projects, especially in the area of the NGS power lines. So you'll see you'll see you know a tribe like Navajo start to make the transition quickly, uh, but they're forced to make that transition, right? Uh, the oil and gas tribes uh, uh, might take the same path. Uh, we'll see. Southern Ute, on the other hand, um, has an investment arm that has looked at investing in renewable energy projects. Uh, they have done some smaller scale renewable energy solar projects on their reservation. One, two megawatt projects to start to at least move the reservation itself. So, uh, it, you know, it wouldn't surprise me that their diversification strategy, if they stay in energy, they will diversify into renewable energy uh, and as uh, either investments or um, participants in projects uh, or as developers, right? A whole host of roles that a tribe can play um, and a tribe, especially tribes with, with uh, access to resources. And by that, I mean financial resources. Um, can play in that. Uh, so I don't know where, you know, Fort Berthold, 
Uh, I remember when I was at Department of Energy, they had looked very strongly at trying to diversify and working with people on uh, doing some renewable energy projects. Because as the Bakken blew up and everybody was moving up there, they had to get new energy infrastructure. They needed new energy sources to run those oil and gas wells. And Fort Berthold very strongly looked at um, how do we get into that business? Uh, so that's a diversification method or or, or uh, opportunity. So I think that's what we'll see is more tribes, especially the tribes with lots of revenue coming off of oil and gas, taking a hard look at diversification. Um, at the same time, you know, it's like kind of what tribes should be doing anyway, right? COVID shuts down tribal casinos for two or three months. And all of a sudden, tribes look around and go, oh, wow. Uh, not like the Great Recession where I might have taken a hit on who comes into my casino. Maybe I don't have as many people coming in, uh, but I still got people coming in. You know, now I got nothing coming in. And so I think there's kind of a, even the pandemic is forcing a reckoning um, for tribes of, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't have all our eggs in the casino basket. Uh, and that too is kind of a transition that I think will lead some tribes into an energy transition whether it's oil and gas or whether it's casino, it's a single resource curse, right? That some tribes are trying to get out of. Uh, and, and that's a transition issue for them uh, with, a, with a single resource curse that, that uh, hopefully they're learning some lessons from. Yeah, that's so interesting. And that point about economic diversification, regardless of you know, what your current bedrock sector is, the importance of economic diversification, especially for rural communities uh, is just so important in the energy transition context. Yep. Um, yep. One, you know, a related question as we're talking about energy transition is the issue of renewable energy development on tribal lands. And, you know, you're an expert on this. And um, as you know, you know, wind and solar development, there has been some development on tribal lands, but it's been relatively slow compared to, let's say, privately owned lands and compared to the uh, amount of available wind and solar resources that tribes have technical access to. Uh, so can you help us understand a little bit why wind and solar development in particular has proceeded relatively slowly on tribal lands? Um, well, I think if you're talking about big wind and big solar, there have been, uh, you know, your typical barriers to development. So you've got to be, you've got to have land in the right place. You've got to have access to the transmission system to get the power to the load centers. And so it, the tribes still, of course, have those, those same uh, hurdles uh, to overcome. For the tribes that do have great resources and access to transmission and can get to a load center, then you tend to see that development happening. So the, the uh, wind project down at Campo, band of um, Kumaye Indians outside of San Diego, 55 megawatt wind, uh, Moapa solar project outside of Las Vegas. They are literally spitting distance to substations that go straight into California, have power lines straight into California. Um, and so that those were the successful solar projects have been. There's a handful of solar projects uh, around Nevada that, and, and other parts of the desert uh, uh, around the Colorado River where you have access to some WAPA lines. Uh, Navajo certainly, for example, should be able to take advantage of their two uh, 
sets of transmission lines that came out of NGS. One came south into Phoenix uh, and Tucson. The other goes west into uh, the Lake Mead substation. So it can take them to points west into California or into Nevada. So that area will get developed because you have access to transmission, which has access to a load. But if you're out in the in the Great Plains, while you may have some pretty decent transmission uh, assets or resources, they've had a harder time partnering up the better wind resources with access to transmission. So the more you've got to build out your gen tie lines, the harder it is to do those projects. Um, there's a lot of projects that are looking now, Eastern uh, Wyoming, Eastern New Mexico, where they're just building super highway transmission lines from, from there. So your HVDC lines like Sunzia or TransWest Express out of Eastern Wyoming straight to California, no starting, no stopping, don't pass go, don't collect $200, right? It's just <laughs> a straight, and you can't get on it because it's too expensive and you can't get off it because it's too expensive. So the transmission development itself also uh, is a huge barrier. Where are the lines planned? Who's planning them? Whose lands are they on? You got a 10 or 12 year development timeline on transmission. Uh, virtually every tribal project that's worth its weight from a commercial standpoint um, lacks the transmission. And so that's the biggest, probably the biggest uh, big wind, big solar development. Uh, but having said that, there is lots of stuff going on that's smaller scale. So a lot of rooftop solar, a lot of community scale or community solar, one megawatt, two megawatt, three megawatt projects. Uh, those are proliferating, I think, pretty decently around Indian country. Uh, you have maybe close to 75 or 100 tribes who have done some combination of pretty decent rooftop solar deployment on tribal housing, for example. Some of that's been helped to a great deal by uh, organizations like Grid Alternatives, which in the interest of full disclosure, I'm on their board, but I worked with them before I was on their board. Uh, and they started off low-income communities and tribal communities in California doing rooftop solar there. Uh, you've had the, the Department of Energy uh, Office of Indian Energy grant program, uh, which is relatively small, but can turn out 10, 12 projects a year at a, a million bucks a project. And, and you can build a pretty decent size one megawatt project for that, that can power, you know, lots of tribal homes or a tribal campus. And now you're starting to see more microgrids get developed. So California uh, which has been really focused on doing microgrid deployment and has explicitly included tribes in microgrid deployment efforts. Uh, there's five or six tribes. There's one tribe that has a, two operating microgrids uh, in Northern California, Blue Lake Rancheria. And then a bunch of tribes in Southern California are starting to build out. They've gotten funds from the state, from the feds to build out microgrid projects. So, uh, so we see the smaller scale um, more self-use. We can power ourselves. We can help ourselves. It's going to save us money because I'm not paying the utility anymore. I've got maybe more reliable power on my reservation now because I'm uh, making that uh, local grid a little bit more reliable. Uh, and so that's really where you see most of the activity happening. Two tribes, commercial scale. 75 tribes, everything else. 
So, um, so I think that's, you know, I take the 75 tribes over the two tribes when it comes to saying how successful uh, can we be at deploying renewable energy. Uh, it's, it's certainly more beneficial to tribal members, for example, to have uh, solar panels on their rooftops because they're the ones paying the electric bill. And so you get buy-in as well from your tribal community that solar projects or small wind projects are good for the community because they see the immediate benefits. If you've got net metering and my bill goes to zero because the solar project is producing all my power for me um, versus say the same tribe does a 20 megawatt wind project or 50 megawatt wind project and the tribe itself will collect rent and it might even collect some taxes, but the tribal members don't directly see benefit from that, except however the tribal government benefits them. And there are lots of tribes that had lots of commercial scale projects going. Uh, they're hard, they're complicated, you need tax credits so the tribe can't own it. Uh, some of those take a long time and tribal members start going, well, wait a minute, where is everything and how are we going to benefit? And, and I've seen enough of those projects die on the vine, not because tribal leadership didn't want to keep doing it or there wasn't a hard, a hard effort to get it done, but because the tribal members go, we don't understand this. You know, you're going to use 2,000 acres of our land to do a project that we're not seeing any benefit out of. So, you know, you have some of that resistance uh, from tribal communities. On the other hand, you put rooftop solar on, on their houses and, and they go, oh, now I understand it. Okay, I don't have a bill. Uh, so, uh, so, so that's why you started to see a movement to smaller projects as well, because there was a need to make sure that the tribal membership was directly benefiting. Right. That's so interesting. And it, it plays into another question that I wanted to ask you about, which is this question of uh, energy poverty on tribal lands. So obviously some tribes are quite wealthy, uh, some tribes much less so. And so for the tribes where energy poverty is a major issue, can you help us understand what some of the causes are and also how things like deploying solar on rooftops can help uh, address the problem? Yeah, so the some of the bigger challenges around energy poverty on tribal lands really have to do mostly with infrastructure and a lack of infrastructure investment. Um, lots of tribes sit, for example, in rural co-op systems and, you know, rural cooperatives, nonprofit, trying to keep costs down, don't always stay up to date on the latest grid technology, for example, don't always... Um, invest in their grid mechanisms. Uh, and so there are a lot of tribes sitting in those systems who have very unreliable power. That to me is an energy poverty issue, just the same as tribes that aren't electrified at all or parts of tribal reservations that don't have power at all. So whether it's no grid or a poor grid, um, that creates it to me an energy poverty challenge. Uh, that's that's a I don't I don't have access to reliable affordable energy, and so if I don't have access to reliable and affordable energy, uh, I've got an energy equity issue. So what can tribes do to mitigate that energy poverty, that energy equity issue? Uh, and I think um, uh, as I was saying in my my last uh, comments about rooftop solar, community scale solar using their own renewable energy resources 
or even their natural gas resources. You know, a lot of tribes that have natural gas where it may not make sense to try and develop it commercially because you don't have enough of it. And so and the infrastructure to get it to market is too great. But it doesn't mean I can't produce natural gas and use it myself. All I need is a small little cleanup technology, a compressor station, and I can I can put it in some tanks and run it around town. So um, so it's not even just clean energy, that there are a lot of tribes with their own resources that if they use them, whether it's biomass resources, that I can turn into wood chips um, or that I can uh, gasify and turn into power uh, or whether it's the sun or the wind or I've got water. There's lots of opportunities to use uh, our own resources to power and heat and transport ourselves. And so to the extent that we, we Indian country have been relying on others to do that for us, uh, that will, in many cases, uh, result in energy poverty or energy inequity because others look at it as a business and say, well, I can't make any money on selling power to the tribe or paying to keep the grid updated. So I'm not going to invest in grid updates uh, and or or you might have, you know, IOUs who look at everybody as a rate payer uh, and 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 will invest in those parts of their infrastructure where there's, you know, the rate payers are going to pay their bills. Right. And IOUs just sorry to interrupt, but oh, IOUs sorry. being investor owned utilities. Right. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Acronym alert. Sorry. So you have these, you know, when the market is controlling, whether it's a regulated market or an open market. Uh, is looking at it from their perspective. Uh, lots of Indian country is not going to fit the bill for them on where they want to invest. So what can tribes do to invest in themselves and to use power for themselves to overcome these energy poverty, energy uh, equity issues? Uh, and so I think that's why focused on smaller projects, using your resources for yourself, trying to find uh, methods and trying to find models for doing that, public-private partnership models, for example, uh, where you can bring some additional resources to the table, especially financial resources. You know, the grant program might give you a couple hundred thousand, maybe a million bucks, but if I've got a $20 million project, then I've got to go find the rest of the money. How can I incentivize public-private partnerships to do that? Uh, and I think tribes could lead the way because of their governmental status and their jurisdictional status and their ability to uh, innovate uh, outside of federal or state law. Because remember, the energy industry is all controlled by federal or state law and mostly state law. So if the state of Arizona wants to keep its head in the sand about uh, distributed energy development, then, you know, tribes can lead the way in Arizona around distributed energy technologies and innovation, whether it's models, whether it's mechanisms, whether it's technology, because they don't have to worry about what the state law says. So that's the other opportunity here around energy poverty is as long as tribes um, continue to over-rely on utilities who are stuck in state law models or old, you know, Rural Electrification Act models, uh, then tribes aren't going to be able to overcome 
energy poverty, energy equity. They're going to have to take the bull by the horn, so to speak, uh, and start to move on their own to use their own resources. Uh, and frankly, I think that's the only way out of that issue. I, I don't see people like the rural electric co-ops, and I may have, I'm sure there's some of them listening here, uh, who are going to lead the way on this. They just, they, they have had an allergy for lots of reasons. They're getting better. Don't get me wrong. Lots of stuff they're doing around community solar and other, other renewable energy efforts, but they've really been slow on the uptake. The utilities, of course, fight everything because all they see is lost revenue. Um, and so, so tribes are in a very unique situation to take advantage of their sovereign authorities, their jurisdictional authorities, and their needs to devise innovation, new products, new projects, new technologies, new models uh, to help themselves. And I think that's, to me, frankly, the only way out of their energy poverty issues. Everybody else is stuck with whatever the state will let them do. So low-income community in South Los Angeles is stuck uh, but tribes aren't stuck. They don't have to be stuck. And so that's that's the exciting part about um, what tribes can do uh, with respect to that. Well, exciting to me. <laughs> yeah, well, exciting to me too. And I imagine to our, to our listeners as well. Um, well, there are many more exciting things that I could ask you about and wish I had time to ask you about, but they'll have to wait for another day. Uh, and let's go now to our top of the stack segment. So asking you what you've read or watched or Heard recently that is related to the environment, even if tangentially, that you think is great. And I will just recommend very briefly a data source, because I know we've got plenty of data nerds like me listening to the podcast. If you're interested in this issue of tribal energy access, one really nifty tool is from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. Uh, they have this online mapping tool called the Tribal Energy Atlas which gives you an interactive map of all the renewable energy resources on tribal lands. Now, of course, access to resources isn't the same thing as access to uh, harnessing those resources, and that's what we've been talking about with Pilar, but it is a really interesting mapping tool to help you understand at least uh, some of the dynamics at play on different reservations around the country. Uh, but now I'll turn it over to you, Pilar. What's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? Well, I read everything that Woods McKenzie puts out. And maybe that's a plug. I don't. You know, that's okay. Yeah. I don't. Rec I don't. But I. I will read just about anything from them. Um, uh, I mean, a lawyer. I'm following all the legal rags. So uh, anything that talks about renewable energy law, any any legal issues associated with uh, this new energy environment, uh, I'm, I'm I'm constantly well for the lawyer in me. You know, want to read about, but. If I want to try and understand kind of broader trends, which when I talk to tribes and tribal leadership about kind of what's happening, I always put it in the context of broader trends. And this is maybe part of my DOE training of, you know, the goal of DOE is to look around the corner. Uh, and so I'm always trying to figure out, well, what's around the corner? Kind of where are things headed? Because there's no sense. Indian country is always lagging behind. Um, and so there's no sense in going down a path that, everybody has abandoned. Uh, and so kind of where, where is everybody else? And, and how can we leverage either other people's experiences or other people's pains? Um, I will read just about anything from Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, who does, a, a, they do a lot of study, kind of study of studies, uh, as well as uh, some direct studies of utility models. Uh, and distributed energy, they're, they're kind of the distributed energy from an economic 
uh, uh, perspective. So if you want to understand what's going on with rates and impacts on rates, which you know is almost always the number one objection to promoting more distributed energy is, well, you're going to shift costs from these people to those people. So I'm always constantly looking to see what Lawrence Berkeley has put out uh, around the utility industry and rates and what they're learning uh, and what people are learning about this. Uh, I certainly will. I, I take a look at NREL. You know, I, we used to have NREL do all our work for us. They still do a lot of work for Indian Energy. Uh, so they're pretty reliable. On the engineering side, I'm always looking at Sandia National Labs. And so I tend to go to the government agencies uh, just simply because they don't have any skin in the game, right? Their job is to be as objective and uh, informative as possible. Uh, they're not getting paid by advertisers or sponsors or somebody other than the other than you, the taxpayer. Um, so, so I try to go to the, the most objective uh, resources that I can, uh, who can who can uh, do a good job of explaining kind of what's going on and and why things are happening the way they're happening. Um, so that's kind of the nerd, the energy nerd in me. <laughs> that's great. And uh, really fascinating recommendations. Lots of reading for our listeners to catch up on. So Pilar Thomas, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. We really appreciate it. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Great to talk to you guys. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.